0: you was now part of a social experiment <laughs> to mastermind the show where you learn to develop and master your skill from the best of the best yes your host mr g
1: welcome to the program thank you for joining us today on the journey towards self-mastery are you minding your mind no worries our next guest has the tools to help you he was an amazing high school athlete and a popular student he had the girls, he had the jokes, he had a car, and he was homecoming king. However, he still struggled with his mental health in his high school years and made an attempt to take his life when he was a senior in high school. After a nine-story fall, 90 feet from his bedroom window, and many months of rehabilitation, he realized that his life had value and could serve a greater purpose. From then on, he started sharing his story and speaking openly to young people about mental health issues all over the country. He's been on Sports Illustrated, People Magazine, USA Today. He was chosen in 2010 as Best of Philly for his work on mental health, and in 2012, he was honored with an Emerging Humanitarian Award from retired San Francisco 49ers player, Nandi Osumwa. He's also been interviewed on Anderson Cooper and Dr. Phil. He's been featured in three documentaries. And his piece, Unbreakable, with E60, was nominated for an Emmy. He's also been invited to the White House for the National Conference on Mental Health, hosted by then-President Obama and Vice President Biden at the time. He's currently serving as public speaker for mental health and travels, the world spreading his message, and encouraging young people to mind their minds. He now serves as Director of Student Engagement at Minding Your Mind. Let's welcome today, Mr. Jordan Burnham. All right, Jordan, thank you for coming on the program, man. We really appreciate having you on. Um, and I know you're a super busy dude, man. So we appreciate you taking the time out um, to sit and chat with us, man.
2: No, absolutely. Absolutely. Happy to be here.
1: For sure, man. Uh, quest- first question and most important, man, how are you doing?
2: Um, you know what? I- I'm good. And it's it's funny. My wife and I, I got married this year. And so like, I can never say, man, this was the worst year ever because I can't say that. <laughs> On the year I got married, but I think this year has been one of acceptance of the things that are out of my control, and and it's like one thing at a time. You have to Mm -hmm. accept that I can't go here or I can't go to the places that I'm used to going. And then for everyone who has a is fortunate enough to have a job, your job might look a little different, and and kind of having to accept all of that. It's been a year of also uh, uncomfort because. For me, I like to stay in my comfort lane of this is what I like to do and this is what I, I, I try and for work, for instance, like I try and use the same type of flow when I'm speaking and presenting because I don't like to step too far out of my comfort zone. Mm-hmm. But I've had to with this, like I, I've had to come on podcasts. I'm, I was never comfortable being on camera with <laughs> on Zoom, any of that. So it was one where I'm also trying to to step out of my comfort zone. And accepts not only what's going on, the things I can't control, but who I am, and, and trying to accept that as well. But you can have two emotions at the same time. I tell that to students all the time. It's mm-hmm. like I can feel, you know, a little down about some of the things that I'm not able to do right now that I'm used to, but I'm also grateful for the time I get to spend with my wife. I'm, I'm grateful for the time I get to spend at home. I'm grateful for the coworkers. I've gotten to, to know a lot better because of this. So there, there are these little lights of, of gratitude that come along in the midst of a global pandemic. And those moments I try and embrace and hold on to as much as I can.
1: Yeah, man, I think that part, too, about you just being uncomfortable is so important as well. And just still going through it, because right now I know a lot of young people, you know, especially me being an educator, are uncomfortable in these classrooms now where they're at home and they got to turn their cameras on. And they don't really want to, but we got to adapt, man. Part of. You know, development is adapting, man, and we have to adapt and be able to communicate at least through the camera if we can't do it face-to-face, you know what I mean? So that part is definitely important, man. So I appreciate you saying that.
2: No, absolutely. I like to acknowledge, I start every presentation by saying, how normal is this? With a smile. And then then I always say, welcome to my living room. My cats and I, we're we're happy to have you here. Because I will never pretend like this is normal. I will never just go into regular presentation mode it's it's important to acknowledge where we are and just be human in the moment
1: absolutely absolutely well said man um one thing with you uh is like that i find to be fascinating is that like, you started off not talking to anybody about how you felt and your emotions and you know how you were feeling mentally so now you're expressing it to the whole world like what like that's a huge transition man like what what inspired you to kind of like share your story despite I'm guessing even in the beginning of it, you weren't that comfortable sharing it to, you know, just a few people. Now you're sharing it to the world. So what, what inspired that, man?
2: It is funny. Whenever I think of like my first high school presentation back in 2008, was in front of a thousand high school students. Wow. In that moment, I'm kind of laughing of thinking I couldn't do this in front of 12 people. My high class (laughs) back when I was in high school, but here I am getting in front of complete strangers and sharing my story. But I, I think that um, the reaction to the first interview I did, with a reporter, Mike Vitez. And you know, I do this interview and I share my story and I'm in a hospital. I don't have a voice. So I had to spell out everything that I wanted to say. And I wasn't expecting anything. I wasn't expecting to, to tell my story again. I wasn't expecting to really get any feedback whatsoever. But then when I heard other stories, when people reached out to me, mm-hmm. one, it, it, didn't, it made me feel like I'm not alone. And two, it made me realize that this is a message that I can share with people in hopes to allow them to feel like they can share their stories, or just to generate a conversation that can lead to a lot of education and learning about mental health.
1: Absolutely, man. I feel like that's just so important for us too, um, black people, uh, because we have so we're so uncomfortable talking about mental health, and we learn from a young age that we shouldn't talk about what's going on in the house outside and you know, keep your thoughts and feelings to yourself. And then even with our friends that, like, you're soft if you're expressing how you feel kind of thing. So I think that, you know, the work that you're doing is kind of really breaking down those barriers for, you know, a lot of Black people where they can see you doing it and be inspired to actually share how they feel, man. So that's important as well.
2: Well, I think as a Black community, it's important to not only acknowledge how we feel and what we're going through, but to define it. And that's Mm. something that we struggle with. And so... Like, I might have the uncle who has a drinking problem, but we might not say alcoholic. Um, I, I know the one cousin who gets really nervous and doesn't want to open up and talk to people, but we don't talk about panic attacks. We don't talk about social anxiety. So I think that, one, it kind of comes from the education of understanding our mental health and what we're going through. But then language matters, and it's important to put that into context because I think that allows people to not only understand what's going on with them, but then that opens it up to, all right, where are the resources? What are the things that I can do to cope with this in a healthy way?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Defining it. I think that's so important, man. And that's a great segue into us defining what depression is. Because I think that that term is so loosely used. Like a lot of people, I feel like they use it, really don't understand what it means. And, you know, from a psychological standpoint, not just like, oh, I'm feeling sad today, so I'm depressed. But what it actually is, to be diagnosed and identified with having depression. So um, do you have a definition that that you use with uh, depression?
2: So the best way that I try and explain it, because I feel like if I I give the definition to students, for instance, that's one thing. But what I try and do is put it in the context of depressed first depression, which you just brought up. Mm -hmm. So I always say that anyone at any given point in time can feel depressed, anyone. Um, But more times than not, that person knows why they're depressed. So maybe it's the anniversary of something very saddening to them, going through a difficult time at school, work, bad breakup, you know, any and all things global pandemic related. But someone like me who has depression, you know, I can wake up one day and have no idea why I feel so sad, crying for no reason, depressed for no reason. And so to have that question of what am I sad about, what am I upset about, that's a really confusing emotion to have because, one, you're not sure how to articulate that to people, that I feel this way, but I can't tell you why. Mm. But, two, then it's hard to ask for help because you're not sure what that help look like, looks like. So, with having depression, that's what it can be like for me, but it can also affect you physically. You could have aches and pains. It could affect you with your appetite, um, whether... You don't want to eat at all or it might be the complete opposite. It's it, it, it extra sleep, all of these things. And it's longer than just maybe a week or two, maybe just a month. But these are the things that can happen for months. And this is something that I've lived with. You know, I'm 31 now and there's still things with my depression that I'm trying to learn about as far as talk about and cope with it as well. So for me, it's a, it's a lifelong journey of coping with my, my depression because I never look at it as I only suffer from depression. I always say, I have depression, I live with depression, but I smile, I laugh, I joke all the time, I love my friends, I love playing with my cats, like there, there's so many parts of my life that I absolutely love, and I also have depression, but I cope with it and manage it in the best way possible. So that's how I define and look at depression as far as how it affects me.
1: Well said, well said, well said. Um, and to me, man, I'm never surprised when a black person says they're suffering from depression or they have depression, right, like, because right. the world we live in, man, whew, man, you need tools to battle that, man. You need tools to assist in our, you know, we need tools to assist in our mental health and to get through these things, man, because any sane person can be suffering from these things just from your everyday. And then looking at, The TV screen, the news, like, what's going on? Like, this black male just got shot. This person just got shot. Like, whoever it is, like, and that stuff plays a role on you, man. It definitely, you know, gets to your head, Um, especially, you know, young people dealing with all this stuff and, um, you know, what's happening now with the police violence and everything, like, and, you know, Black Lives Matter movement and everything, man. That stuff plays a role in the way your brain develops, what you're thinking about, everything. So, definitely get it, man. I definitely get that, that standpoint. Uh, and I also believe too, like with mental health in general, that uh the starting point is from childhood, you know what I mean from when how our mental health develops um if we have certain mental health issues and things like that. I think that kind of therapy kind of brings that about too, like you know that childhood the development mentally through childhood and all of that so i I do like to start from childhood so we can get a better understanding. so would you mind if you could uh just you know start with childhood with us and just really? Let us in on, you know, Jordan Burnham's life and how you got to this point, man.
2: Yeah, um, so I grew up uh, right outside of Pittsburgh, Um, or in in Pittsburgh, and so for me, I have my mom and dad. My dad uh, has been an athletic director for over 30 years, just retired. My mom was an elementary school teacher for over 30 years. Uh I have my my best friend, my sister Tara, who's uh, five years older than me, and so growing up was interesting for me because... Um, life changed a lot. And also, I, I got really close with my sister when I was in third grade, because in third grade, uh, we had to go from this private school that my dad was working at to a public school that was predominantly black. And when I got to that school, I heard things I never heard before. Like you talk white. Mm. and uh, you, Why do you talk so proper? Why do you dress that way? Why don't you sound like us? And it was um, it was confusing because I'm just acting like myself. I'm just talking in the way that I was taught to. And so when I got home, I wasn't sure what to do with that, those feelings of sad and feeling lonely. But I would talk to my sister because she was going through the same type of things, similar ways that she felt. So that was my first time actually talking about what I was feeling and what I was going through was with my sister. And so when I was growing up, what I relied on was humor. I was always the class clown being able to make people laugh. It's hard to pick on the person who's making you laugh. So that was my go-to. Got uh, um, the, the sports love being able to play sports, basketball, baseball. Uh, since I was six, I've been playing golf. So that's my, that's my favorite sport. And then I was always just one of those people person. Like that's what I was of trying to just meet people, trying to gain friends. And I think that helped me along that. Once I got to middle school, I finally felt comfortable and around the, the people around me and kind of the friends that I had. And then in seventh grade, my sister goes off to college. So I don't really have that person to talk to anymore. Then my dad gets a new job outside of Philadelphia. So I'm switching schools again, going from a predominantly, you know, black school to then now a school that's 5% black, um, in the suburbs of Philadelphia. So there I am again, just trying to figure out. What is acceptable to be as a black, you know, boy, black kid? Like, how am I supposed to act around everyone? What is acceptable? What's not acceptable? What's over the top? So you're playing this game in your mind while also trying to pay attention in social studies and math, and <laughs> like trying to get enough sleep. Seventh uh, grade was the first time that I felt actual, just real sadness of not knowing what to do at night, not being able to sleep not feeling like myself, waking up, the crying for no reason. All of that is what I felt in seventh grade. But I didn't feel like I could talk to a counselor because it's not like my parents were going through a divorce. It's not like I, I knew someone close to me that had just passed away. There was no life altering situation that was going on. I just felt what I was going through, I need to just not talk about it, feel okay, be okay, put a smile on, make other people laugh and just get through the day. And that's how I went about throughout middle school, all the, all the way into high school. But you take all those feelings of not talking about things, trying to put on a mask to hide that, then you mix that with drinking for the first time, and then using drinking as a way to either open up or amass some of those feelings and as a negative coping mechanism. You take that and then not talking about emotions and feelings, that gets to a really, really dark place, it gets to a really negative place to a point where my parents weren't sure what was going on. If I was just being a teenager, or if there was something deeper that was happening there. And so I was diagnosed with depression when I was 16, went to go see a therapist. When I got into that therapist's office, I was very judgmental because, one, I didn't want to be there, but two, I'm looking at this woman and she's white, I'm black, and my first immediate thought is she don't never understand What I'm I'm talking about, to never be able to relate to me.
1: Yeah, do you you even think that's possible? Like, For a white therapist like that's digging into your psychology, your understanding of what it means to be a human being, is it possible for them to really understand what a a, a black person is going through in this world
2: and how to help them? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I always used to think, is that how it's going to work? But I always think of it in this way. If I went to go see a doctor for a broken leg, I don't need to ask him if he's ever had a broken leg before. I just need to make sure he knows what he is doing for me as a patient. Now, if he tells me, hey, I had the same accident, I'm sorry to hear that, I might trust him a little more and saying, oh, OK, all right. Then you know what the pain is, you know how that recovery is like, OK, I can be maybe a little more honest with you. But for a therapist, what I thought is I can only talk to a the therapist who gets me and understands me. But really now I look at a therapist and the one that I have today, um, who's not black, and saying they help me process my mental health in the way that I, I need to and not yeah. have to. Make me re-examine things in a different way. Like my therapist will hear something that I'm saying is a problem, and he'll take me from that problem, which is really maybe an issue and say, let's get to the root of that problem. Let's let's explore there. And that's what my therapy session might look like. For me as a kid, I'm thinking, well, you have to understand me in order to help me. Well, I think that's just kind of how I felt even as a teenager and even in getting older. But I think I grew to understand that with depression and with my mental health, as long as someone can hear me, can hear how I'm processing things, and is not judging me for that, that, okay, we can work together and I can have these these therapy sessions. But that's something I had to get used to. So what you bring up is a legitimate point because that is something that lacks in the mental health field, mm. seeing a therapist or a social worker or a counselor that mirrors your skin color or background. And that kind of goes, you know, we can get into this later of what can be some of the barriers to getting help. And I don't blame you for asking that question because actually go into the medical field, um, they did a study and it showed that black men who had black doctors were healthier and at a better place, more honest with that doctor. And a lot of it might come back down to just the talk that you and I might have, just the background of information, mm-hmm. just the references, just one thing that makes me say, "Oh, I can trust you. Let me be a little more honest with what I'm actually doing with my health, and you're there to listen and validate those feelings or those those experiences. I mm-hmm. think that it, it kind of goes back to that. You can have two feelings at the same time. I think it's it's perfectly reasonable for someone who is Black to say, well, let me make sure I can look everywhere. and Maybe someone who looks like me might understand me or understand my struggle a little better.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that makes, I think it makes a lot of sense, man. And I, of course, it is up to the individual to decide when they get in that, that room with the therapist. Am I really comfortable with this person? Can I express myself? um but you're right like when we do get in the space with people that look like us that have similar experiences we are like wow okay maybe now i could breathe really, you know take a deep breath out and kind of express myself um and even with you mentioned the black men even with black women you know black women have have the uh you know highest rate of um death after giving birth um and a lot of the research shows that it is you know because of a lot of um racist kind of ideology and thoughts about um, Black women not feeling pain and just things from from a historical standpoint that still stands today. Um, So these these are found in, like, every avenue of life, you know. And I know a lot of Black women now, sometimes they look for, you know, specific Black doctors or um, Black nurses or, you know, somebody that looks like them, that can vouch for them and speak for them when they are in a position where mm-hmm. they don't have a voice when they're about to give birth. So these are found everywhere, man. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you, you, you understand that. So with your experience now with, with the, the old white woman, like did you eventually learn to accept her as your therapist? Like what happened after that?
2: Yeah. You know, I stuck with her, um, all throughout high school, actually. She was, um, she was a great person that, that listened and gave feedback. She didn't challenge me. Like my therapist does now, where um he'll bring up something where I'm smooth to to avoid it and go to the next subject where I'm comfortable talking about that next subject. But my therapist now will say, no, let's let's hold on, let's stay here really quick and and let's address exactly what's going on. And so my therapist back then, she really was she was great at listening. And it took it probably still took two or three months for me to get used to talk therapy because as a, a 16 year old, I wasn't used to having someone to help me process. My mental health issues. And also, I just didn't understand what talk therapy was and what the point was. Um, You know, I wasn't sure, Right, is she going to tell my parents everything that I say in this session? You know, just it wasn't something that I truly understood or or got immediately, but it took some time. And then I got kind of used to it. And then I I got in this rhythm of being able to share certain things. But I, I think there were still certain parts of me that I would hold back, either one, because of judgment or two, Just being a teenager, not wanting to admit all the things I was doing, especially when it came to my drinking. Um, So that's something that evolved as I got older, but still struggled with opening up completely to not only her but to other people as well.
1: Got you, got you. So with the drinking, was it like you were an occasional drinker? Were you at home like with a bottle by yourself? Were you just social with it? And were you like getting super drunk and intoxicated, or was it just like to create a buzz and? So what 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 type of drinker would you say you were like at that age?
2: Yeah, it's um it was some it was such it's a progressive thing that just happened. Um like I tell people all the time is that the first time I drank when I was in high school, um there was no repercussions that came that night. There was nothing bad necessarily that happened that night. Um I went to bed and, and that was it. Now I never would have thought this is going to be the first of many, and at the point this is going to become unmanageable. Um, and I'm not going to have any control of it because I didn't feel that way in that moment. But all of a sudden it went from, OK, I'm I'm doing this to fit in and, and go to parties. And then it's OK, well, let me just do this a little more often. It's OK. It's it's not a big deal. Let me just do this and drink when other people are. And then, you know, that starts at ninth grade and then 10th grade. It's It's getting drunker than anyone else. And then, mm. uh, you know, junior year, all of a sudden I, I have alcohol and I'm drinking by myself, but I'm still trying to justify it depending on the time of day or night. I'm still trying to justify it as being you know, young and those are just the things that I do, and that's fine. Um, and then all of a sudden I'm using alcohol in a way where one, I'm, I'm using it either to mask or just forget about the things I'm going through, but then I'm waking up in the morning and it feels 10 times worse. Or I do something that's really, again, unhealthy that unfortunately a lot of guys will do is holding in and suppressing these emotions and then drinking, and then using that as the opportunity to try and express how I was feeling. Mm -hmm. That's never a healthy way to do that. It's never um, a great way of communicating. And oftentimes, it just left me in a feeling of, all right, I talked about this last night, but we were drinking, so I can just leave it alone. Let me just move on and forget about the emotions and the crying that happened the night before. Mm -hmm. So it was one of those things where it just got out of control um, throughout high school. And in the moment in time, I'm thinking, I'm fine. I'm okay. Um, no, no one can tell that I'm drinking too much or that I'm drinking on my own and, and I'm okay. And I, I used to justify that all the time. And, um, then yeah, looking back in high school, it's, it's, there were a lot of unhealthy things that started and just progressively got worse over time. And drinking was one of them.
1: Absolutely. I think a lot of uh, teens that suffer from different mental health issues or illnesses, like they go through the self-medication phase first because it's, you know, an easy way of attempting to soothe that pain where you don't have to go to anybody else and you can kind of try it for yourself and see if it gets better. And like you just said, eventually it can lead to an addiction or it could lead to dependence um, or it just could just not work at all. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and for your case, it, it didn't work, right? So your 11th grade year. Uh, you had issues with, with your driving test, right? Your your road test.
2: Yeah. So that actually came up. That was tenth grade. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. When I when I failed my driver's test uh for the third time because apparently uh, parallel parking is a big deal. But <laughs> yeah, that's the was when I when I failed, and that me failing the driver's test is, is one thing. And this is actually a perfect example of um when someone might snap or someone might. Yell or curse at someone because they uh, were cut off on the road or because of something that happened in a restaurant. And that person snaps in that moment and that angst comes out. And all of a sudden, you're wondering, why did they yell? Why did they get that angry? So for me, the, the, the driver's test is actually a perfect example of this and the reason why I have empathy for other people of what might be going on behind the scenes of things. So for me, when I failed that driver's test on the surface, It's just failing a driver's test. There's plenty of people who fail a driver's test and are perfectly fine with it or just say, okay, I'll I'll get it next time. But for me, in that moment, um, everything that was the end of the world. So I'm yelling and cursing at this driver instructor who I I don't even know. You know, I'm yelling (laughs) and cursing at my dad. You know, my dad I look up to the most, and I was always brought up to be incredibly respectful to my parents, but, you know, especially my dad. So I'm yelling and cursing at my dad. my dad is stepping back saying, what's going on? Like, Where is this coming from? Because he doesn't see the Jordan that is suppressing all these emotions and feelings. Mm -hmm. He doesn't see the Jordan that is now progressively using more and more alcohol to just try and open up and talk about things. Um, The Jordan who is not reaching out for help when he really needed it. And so all of that comes out at once after a driver's test. And so on the surface, it looks like, wow, he just really overreacted. And that's what happened. But my mom, when my dad told me what happened, because he was very angry and saw it as very disrespectful, my mom could see kind of going back to the stem and the root of a problem. She mm-hmm. could say, all right, well, there's something going on emotionally, because if he's failing a driver's test and that is his reaction, then emotionally he's dealing with something. And let's, let's get to that first. Before we think about the driver's test itself. That was, that was actually the beginning of me going to, to talk therapy. And then, you know, I get to my junior year of high school. And I was just at a point then where I didn't know how to function in a healthy way with my mental health. You know, even though I was seeing a therapist, even though I was taking medication, not on a daily basis and not um, consistently, which is also one of the problems leading up to my senior year. Um, but that year, I actually went to a behavioral hospital. Wow. Um, yeah, it was. And you know what? When I got to the behavioral hospital, I'm I'm looking around and I'm finding a reason to not be there yet again. Mm-hmm. Um, my therapy. I'm pr- trying to figure out a way to not be there. And I'm talking to these these guys who are going through such traumatic things. Um, whether it's you know being addicted to any drugs or as much alcohol as, as you can think of, um, losing family members, friends to to gang violence. Um, kids who were 14, 15, physically abused since they were children—all these things, um, you know—that I couldn't relate to, and I thought these problems are bigger than mine. Therefore, I don't need to speak up and talk about just having depression and and talking about the experiences that I've had. And it wasn't until my first therapy session that um, the therapist in there said something to me that I I've always took with me, and he said, "You, know, you don't need to minimize." how you feel based on the severity of other people's problems. You know, if you, if you tell me I'm feeling this way, if I tell you the person next to you is going through way worse things, it's not going to make you feel any better or more grateful for the things that you have. It's just going to minimize exactly what you're feeling in your experience, feeling as though it's not valid, but it is. And um, that was actually probably the first time anyone told me that. Because I think it is sometimes a go-to reaction for adults to tell kids, hey, um, don't complain or don't be sad. These people over here have it way worse than you. These people in this country have it way worse than you. Just be grateful for what you have. And it kind of goes back to the being, having two emotions at the same time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like You can feel like they're struggling and still be grateful for the things around you um, that you have. And so that's what I took from that being in that behavioral hospital. You know, I I enjoyed my time of being in there and getting to know some of the guys in there and gaining the experience of just talking to guys about feelings and emotions without having to drink over.
1: Absolutely, man. And I would I would even add on that uh, not just adults, but kids do that, too, where it's like, man, did you really cry about that? Or that's not that serious, man. Get over that, man. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, you're sad. What are you talking about, man? Just, you know. (laughs) listen to this uh like you know get over it man it's not that serious and um it always reminds me of um chalice line and um the 1-800 song where he says you know pain don't hurt the same you know what i mean like where somebody's pain and this is where empathy goes you know comes along where somebody's pain you know might not even make sense to you or it might you might not feel it like you might be like you know this person is upset about this like are you serious but everybody has a different you know, threshold for pain and a different experience. You know what I mean? So my pain might not be your pain. You know what I mean? And I think it's important for us just to really understand that and to really be accepting to other people's views and their, uh, you know, when they when they come out to us and tell us that they're feeling a certain way, whether it be anger or sadness or whatever it is that we try to understand where they're coming from and not just be like, well, if it was me, I wouldn't feel like that. Why do they feel like that? I feel like that's the average reaction, you know, from ch- children and adults where we look at ourselves first before looking at the other person. And I think that we have to do it the other way and really look at that other person and just really feel what they're saying and try to feel it, what you know, they could be going through and understand that pain don't hurt the same, you know?
2: No, I completely agree. I think it's, um, it's important to validate the the people around you. I think it's, you know, I think part of that for us, too, might be a, a almost like a defense mechanism mm. of trying to deflect to something else, because if you tell me you're in pain um, and I say it'll be fine, then my side of the street is clean because I gave you all the, the advice that I had to.
0: True, sure, true. If, sure.
2: if you tell, you know, help. Now I have to actually sit here and I need to, to do the things that I love to do, which is listening to people, validating their experiences. And I think, too, um, especially as men, it's always a, all right, you'll be fine. Like, just give it a week or two. It's it's a breakup. It's not that big of a deal. But I think that we all have to do a better job sometimes of saying, hey, um, I just saw you're going through something. Let's talk about it. Like, let's get mm-hmm. you some help. And so one of the things that people, the analogy people like to use is if you break your leg, you know, you know, you're going to see a doctor. Um, there's something that you have to do, don't do, you know, you need help. So for me, I always say, if I'm with you and I see that you broke your leg and you say, hmm, I'm good. I'm fine. I'm not going to say, Oh, okay. alright." <laughs> I say, no, the car is right here. We're going to the, the emergency room. We need to get you some help. Right. And I do that with my friends. If I see a friend who is struggling, I'm not going to say, all right, I saw what you went through. You tell me you're good, you're good. No, I say, no, let's sit in these feelings. Let's let's talk about what you're going through. Let me be here for you. I can listen. And even if I can't relate, I can still listen and validate and I can assist you in whatever you need. And sometimes that space, sometimes it's just letting someone vent, whatever that may be. I try and be there for that person
1: and support them. Yeah, absolutely, man. I think all of that is important, man. And I think it's important too, that you always are out, you yourself are out in the open about, seeing a therapist and you've been dealing with therapists since you were you know a kid and I think sometimes we look at therapy like man that means that I'm crazy or I'm deranged or whatever it is and it's nothing like that I think everybody can benefit from a therapist and you know sometimes we have our friends that are therapists or our parents or whoever it is that we speak to that serve that role and to me when I think about therapy I usually think about it from the perspective of like having a coach you know what I mean like if you're and you know what I'm talking about from being an athlete. If you're you could be the best athlete on the planet, you don't have 360 vision. You know what I'm saying? Like you don't know what's going on on the other side of the court, the field, whatever it is. But your coach does. Your coach sees that, and that's where those relationships kind of connect. Where from that therapist or from whoever it is that you're talking to, they can show you another viewpoint and then kind of present things that you don't see or that you didn't think about. Now you can start to become more aware of the same way in which a coach does. So. For us to say we don't need a therapist, why do we need coaches, you know? Why do we need te- teachers? And, that, like, why do we need these people in our lives if we definitely, if we don't need a therapist? It doesn't make sense, right? So, um, definitely, that's how I like to think about kind of, like, therapy and what it represents. Because a lot of times I hear people say, well, if I go see a therapist, it's going to mean I'm crazy. Oh, like, not at all. Like, you're not deranged. Like, I think the part of the human experience is having a mental health issue at some point. You know, so... Um, I, I I'm really glad that you 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 like to talk about that, like just seeing a therapist and and um having somebody to talk to. Other
2: no, the other thing I was just gonna say is that I I tell people I still see my therapist when things are going great. Like I I still and and what I usually say is, the best actors still have acting coaches. Mm-hmm. Like they still use people to help them in certain roles and movies that they may be in. So even though the person that you see is like, oh, he has everything going on. Why does he still need to see a therapist? Because it's it's always an ongoing process.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. All right, so now we are at your senior year. What was what was going on then?
2: Yeah, by the time I get to my senior year, I think I had these thoughts of um suicide and and not a specific plan. But I think the the one thing I kept saying over and over again was I don't necessarily want to die, but the part of me that has depression, no, I want that part to die. You know, the the part of me that feels sadness and guilt about a lot of things, I I want that part to die. And, um, you know, I don't think I ever thought it would get to that point where I actually went through with a suicide attempt. But um, the beginning of my my senior year of high school, I attempted suicide by going out of my nine-story bedroom window. And... That was a that was a regular Friday of, of high school. I didn't wake up that morning thinking this is the day I'm going to attempt suicide. That was an impulsive suicide attempt, and so yeah, that that happened beginning in my senior year. Um, to this day, I don't remember going out my window. I remember everything else leading up to the that event. I remember my uh, physics class that morning, uh, every golf golfing that day, the the car at home I had with my dad, but going out the window, I just I don't remember. Um, and so I got to the hospital, and devastating injuries, uh, you know, as anyone could imagine. And it, it wasn't until the fifth day I was at the hospital that my parents were told I would survive, but it would be a long physical recovery.
1: Wow. And can Can you break down like the the uh, injuries, like what, yeah. what 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 transpired just you know after that attempt?
2: So I broke my left fibula, my left uh, tibia. I shattered my left. I broke my pelvis. I broke my jaw in four different places. I broke my left wrist. I had fractures to my skull and was uh, bleeding internally from my brain and my organs. And uh, that was the main issue when I was falling to the hospitals. That's that's what they couldn't stop was the internal bleeding. And then that was in you know, 24 hours, 48 hours. And then the, on the fourth day I was there, my dad was told I had a 40% chance to live. Wow. And then it was that next day, the fifth day, that they were told I would survive. And so I was induced into a coma for five days. I was in the ICU for two weeks. And I still don't remember one moment of being in that ICU. But I remember being in the hospital. And it's it's such a strange feeling because the doctors and nurses knew my name. They were talking to me like they knew me. I, um, I'm still trying to figure out what's going on, why I can't talk. I had a, a trach in my throat. I had this feeding tube going down my nose. Um, my left wrist was wrapped up. I had these steel rods, my left leg, and I just had no idea why I was there. Mm. And it's a, um, it's a scary feeling, but also it's just really confusing at the same time to be in this hospital and have no idea why I'm there in the first place.
1: Wow, what, what an experience, man. And um, from that, like, I also think about just how miraculous it is, man. Like, because um, I think you said, too, like, your your physics teacher told you that, like, after five stories, you know, a fall, like, which is, like, 50 feet, it's, like, almost, like, 100% chance of death, you know what I mean? And your experience was 90, 90 feet, you know, nine stories, man, and I think that is just miraculous, man, like, through it all, like, you're even here to tell the story, man, and I think that's further evidence of your purpose, man in this world, man. So that's, that's so important.
2: Yeah. I, um, yeah, well, my sister, my sister's the one who told me what happened. And, um, my first thought when my sister told me, I fell on stories. Um, one, I, I had a sense of gratitude just to be alive and to, to know my parents were there and my family. And, uh, but then there were, there was kind of two things that I was willing to accept in that moment. And one it is physically, my body would never be the same, and so I think when my sister told me she was she was crying, and I, I think that was part of it. I think she knew that telling me I went out of my nine-story you know window wasn't just oh this is a suicide attempt. It's her giving me the reality mm-hmm. of all and the injuries that came along with it. And so for that to happen, you know, I have to accept that. But then too, I think to accept that it was a suicide attempt was something that was hard, too, because I just never thought I would get to that point because I I didn't have a plan. I didn't write a letter. It was just something that was impulsive. And so being in there, I was still just very grateful to be alive. And, you know, the the really the goal was never to walk or get my life back completely physically. It was always let me just see what I can do to be physically more independent down the road, even if that's just being able to wheel myself in a wheelchair. And so while I was in there, you know, my parents came in at the very beginning of the day, visiting hours. It was prayer. When they left every night, it was prayer. Throughout the day, there's prayer. I mean, my family's a very spiritual family, religious family. And so, um, you know, for me, that was definitely a big part of this was just having faith in something that you didn't know what the the end goal was. You know, I I would never be able to say, you know, I, I was sitting there in that hospital room thinking, man, I can't wait for another 12 years, I get to share my story and go around the country and speak about mental health and all of this. Now I was sitting there thinking, I don't know what's going to happen next in my life, but I'll just sit here and be still and, and, and see where this goes. And and to be here today to be alive, to be able to share my story is truly a, a blessing and something that um, I'm just incredibly grateful for to have this opportunity.
1: Absolutely, man. Absolutely. Did was it clear to you, like, after, like, at that point, that your new reality, your new purpose would be to share your story? Because I know, like, right afterwards, maybe, was it days after, weeks after that, that first reporter came to you to to kind of ask you about, you know, what, what your experience was?
2: Yeah, I always tell Mike, man, that takes guts to, to um, <laughs> email my parents while I'm still to you at that point, actually. Wow. So, yeah, so that's when he emailed my parents, and uh, Mike, actually, his intention was just to cover the physical aspect of this, because all he heard was that a high school student fell nine stories and, and survived. And so his first initial thought of the story, and a lot of journalists and, and reporters are like this, and they think that here's going to be the main story. And then all of a sudden you get in there and there's more there. And mm. so Mike, that's what it was. Is he didn't go into this interview interview thinking this is going to be a mental health story. He's thinking, "Oh, this is the physical story of someone rehabbing after falling nine stories." Right. And then all of a sudden, we're talking about depression, and we're talking about the suicide attempt itself, and all the things that kind of led up to it. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, it, that was um, all happening while I'm in the hospital. And, and this is, again, it's 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 weird to think back to the point that I'm, I'm I was 18 at that point. Because I know being 31 today, what I think of, you know, 18, of just being such a young age of still trying to find, you know, kind of your place in the world and in your meeting and your purpose. And at that point, I didn't necessarily know the purpose at first when I first told my story. But then you get some more perspective as a year goes by, as two years go by. And then you meet, you get these, these, I call them flower moments in that this happens only a handful of times, but it just serves just really that bigger purpose that that you weren't aware of at first is um, every once in a while, I'll meet someone and they'll tell me that I spoke at their school five or six years ago and they still remember. And I call it a flower moment because as a speaker and as a presenter and, you know, minding your mind, we have incredible speakers who go around and, and, and share their stories. And so while you're sharing your story, you're planting a seed and you just hope that there's a message in there that students can take. And they can go from there, and you really have no idea because you're off to the next presentation, you're off to the next school, to the next speech. And every once in a while, there's someone who gives you a flower from the garden that grew from that seed you planted five, six years ago, you know, that you, you forgot about. And then you you get that flower, and you just think, I'm so lucky to be doing this, I'm so fortunate to be doing this, but also there's just a bigger purpose that I could have never envisioned and never planned for. And this is it.
1: Absolutely, man. I'm sure along the way, like, you know, those flowers blossoming, like you saved probably so many lives just from listening to somebody that, you know, that shares my, my feelings right now that I want to do this or my, my thoughts about depression or anything like um, it's, I think it's rare, especially in a young, with a young person, especially with a young black male like that, all that is rare. And I think that, you know, your voice is very important, man. Um, yeah, so we're going back to, like, your your accident, man, like, uh, I think it's important, too, just your recovery process, man. Like, what was that like? And I know that was kind of probably another challenge for you mentally, just with the pain and the consistency of it. And I don't know how, how uh, close the milestones were or how far apart they were but can you walk us through kind of some of that and just you being able to, to, I, I don't know if you're, you're a hundred percent now, but you look like you can, you can run like around the track right now and and, and give people a run for their money, man. So I don't know.
2: That's <laughs> the best part about zoom, man. Whenever I get on zoom, all you have to do is just be fun. That's it. <laughs> That's like everyone you at least look in shape, but um, now, yeah, I mean the, the physical aspect is something that I always enjoy when someone asks me, because in the, in the midst of thirty minutes, I could never just take you into how much went into the physical part of this, because hmm. now when someone sees me on a on a stage, for instance, you know i'm I am not in a wheelchair anymore um I'm not using crutches or I'm not using a cane, so someone may not know exactly what you said, where those milestones, how long it took, so it took four years to be able to walk again, wow. But you know what? It's funny. Everyone always says, well, wow, but I, it never felt like that because it was never the goal. And so hmm. probably one of the best things uh, one of the doctors in there said was that it's, it's highly unlikely that you'll never like, you'll ever walk again. And I'm so, so happy he told me that because on the flip side, let's say he says, Jordan, it's going to take four years for you to walk again. One, that sounds like a really long time when you hear that for the first time.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: The second thing is I would skip over each little milestone that was a miracle that day, Mm. the biggest deal that day. So the first time, I remember the first time in the hospital I moved my left leg, that was the biggest deal in the hospital that day. (laughs) (laughs) The first time I put weight on my left leg for two seconds that was the biggest, like my mom cried that day. You know, when my, when I talked for the first time, I said, hi, dad, that was the first time he heard my voice for two and a half months. He cried, he broke down that day. And then I, I mean, I remember when I stood unassisted for for three seconds, I was using railings, but I stood unassisted for three seconds. And that was the biggest deal that day. And my, my thought was never, oh, I might be able to walk someday. It's just man, let me just enjoy and embrace this moment because it's one that I never thought I would have. And then to physically be able to get to the point where I'm able to you know, walk around today, I, I would say that the highlight was probably two years ago. And that was the first time I, I walked 18 holes of, of golfing. And that's something I never thought I'd ever be able to do again. And so it was just a long but steady process of getting better physically and so if someone sees me today, you know they could probably tell something happened because I walk with a little bit of a limp and a little hunched over. But um, now to, to just be able to stand, to be able to walk around today, just just the things I'm able to, you know, it, it puts life in a perspective that in that hospital those are very long days. Mm-hmm. And the bigger one of the things that I took away from being in the hospital, there were many life lessons in there. But one of them was that it's not always about me. And so I learned that because of the button that you push for the nurse when you're in pain. Because mm-hmm. when you're in that pain, in your mind, you're in the most pain than anyone that is in that hospital. You are in the most pain than anyone that is in that floor. And, and that's to you, that's undeniable. But when I was 18 and I'm in that hospital and I'm in pain and I, I have to remember that there's a lot of people in this hospital. There's a lot of people on this floor. I was on the traumatic floor unit unit when I was in the hospital. So being patient and having patience, so that I know everyone else is taken care of is something that was instilled in me for a long time because of being in that hospital and understanding the bigger picture of there's someone in the left of me. I have no idea what they're going through but let's make sure they're taken care of. There's someone to the right of me, have no idea what pain they're in, but I want to make sure they're taken care of. Um, so the patience of having to wait, not being able to talk, and, and having to depend on everyone for everything, just taught me, one, how precious life is, but to just the bigger picture of what people can do to you, for you, um, is to be grateful for that, but also to be uh, mindful and self-aware of the people that are around you that need help as well.
1: Absolutely, man. Absolutely. And um, through it all, man, through all of this, too, um, you were able to still uh, walk at your graduation and and go to your graduation and everything, and even your prom. Um, So I think that within itself is is incredible as well, man. And I remember from your your, uh, short documentary, uh, The Unbreakable, that your dad was just talking about just how how much it meant to him that you were able to, to, to walk. And then uh, you guys met each other, you know, after coming down the steps and you guys hugged and, and cried, man. I was just, that was a deep moment, man. That was a really deep moment. You know?
2: Oh, yeah. It's, it's funny you, you bring up that part because I just interviewed uh, Martin Kotabashian who produced and, and directed that piece. And I remember when he reached out to me, it was uh, 2010 and he said, hey, I, I, I read about your story and we'd just love to talk to you and maybe do this piece. Mm-hmm. And he said, um, and Martin's just so brilliant in the way that he does things film wise. And so he said, I'm going to just do this piece. It's going to be 10 minutes. We're going to tailor it around your speech. And then you'll see that we'll tell the story that you want to be told. And I said, all right, let's hey, let's let's do that. And so I'm, I'm sitting down and he's asking me questions for five hours. And probably within an hour in he says. Is there anything you don't talk about during your presentation? And I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't talk about graduation. I cry every time. I, it, it's <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I don't know what's gonna happen that day. I might not make it through. Um, and he was like, okay, just I was just wondering, not, not a big deal. And so uh, we get near the end, and uh, he's like, tell me about graduation. <laughs> I, I, I tell him, I tell him this story about how you know I'm in a wheelchair and and. That was my biggest goal was when I first started physical therapy was to be able to walk at graduation. And I put the um, wheelchair, I put the brakes on, I stand up and I put my hands on the walker and I I start walking. And, you know, I couldn't look at anyone. I couldn't look at anything other than my dad because he has these tears just running down his face as he's holding my wheelchair. And it's just a moment in a time that I'll never forget of having that with my dad. And so I'm telling this story and Martin's right in front of me and I, I get done and he's crying. He's, he's, he's crying. And then the guy, the sound guys are in the other room and they're just, they're drenched because they're crying. And everyone's <laughs> it's just, it was one of those moments where you never know how impactful a moment is to someone else until you say it. Yep. You know, that that graduation part was definitely so I'm, I, thank you for watching. First off, and uh second, yes, that that part is forever something that is special and I cherish um my family. Uh we we really love just talking about that moment.
1: Absolutely, and that moment is important too, man. Um you know, the first time I watched that was with with my class. Um and you know, we're watching it and I'm like, witnessing this in this moment and it's just so emotional. And I was crying too. I'm like, I'm crying. Kids are like, Mister Jim, you crying? Are you crying right now? Like, you know, to them it's like, my teacher's crying. Like, what in the world? (laughs) So, so I I took the second to pause and just have a teaching moment with them and told them that you know what I mean. Like, um, crying is one of the things that we kind of like brush to the side with our mental health, and we don't release the pain. You know what I'm saying? And we don't release certain emotions because of the stigma of what crying means—that you're weak as a male. You know what I'm saying? And I told them that uh, right now we're looking at two two black males hugging each other, crying. Like, that is that is so important right now. And I told them that, you know, it's okay to cry. Like, I'm crying right now. Like, you know what I'm saying? I'm not covering it up. It's fine. It's okay. This is part of your mental health. This is part of your development as a person and accepting these feelings that you're feeling. You know, so I appreciate that part too, man. You got me some teaching moments, man.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think... um You know, there's I never think of it as a a responsibility as a black man to 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 be honest and to show my emotions. And sometimes I do wear them on a sleeve. But I think um, I do think my generation, I'm sure the younger generation, too, I think redefining what a man really is and how a a man truly acts and, and expresses himself, I think is really important to redefine. Because, you know, I know how past generations, what they thought of, what it is to be a man and to be tough. And I think to be able to show emotions, to show, to cry is showing me that you're human mm-hmm. and, and that you have emotions, that you have feelings. And I, I enjoy being able to embrace the moments where I'm crying when I'm sad and I'm crying when I'm happy. And I've, you know, it's it's one of those things that as men, something that I know we can struggle with, but especially as black men, because uh, I go back to thinking, you know, how much words and language matters. And when you hear b- strong black man over and over again, you're thinking, oh, I got to hold on to that title. Gotta, you know, strong black woman. All right. Well, I can't I can't have a bad day. I can't be sad. I got to hold that title. And so I think um, for me as a black man, I always think it's important to just show it's OK to be vulnerable. It's OK to cry and it's OK to have the emotions that you have because that's what makes you human
1: absolutely absolutely man and i do believe too that just holding that in too you're gonna have to release it at some point man and it could be through an explosion you know what i mean like as opposed to like these little moments where i'm crying or these little moments where i'm releasing everything and you know i'm okay now like i wasn't okay 10 minutes ago i got it out i'm good now like i think that's important um you know very very important uh but yeah just just to move along now you know you've graduated high school And you're getting in the phase of purpose, vision, like what you want to do with your future. Like, how did how did it come to like, I want to speak to people all over the world about mental health and, you know, minding their mind? Like, how did it come to that?
2: Yeah. um, So when I was, let's see, so I was 18 still at this point in 2008. And so I've been reached out to by a woman named Susan Saylor, who worked at this organization, Minding Your Mind. And she said that she just wanted to come and talk to me and, and meet me. She had heard the story. And so, um, she invited my, my parents and I to this forum discussion that they were having. And, um, there were four speakers and one of them was Ross Sable, who eventually ended up getting me into speaking, um, or having me get into speaking. And then the last one was this guy, Joey Panagliano, who I knew from, um, The Matrix because I was too young to watch The Sopranos back when it was, um, on, but, I knew him from The Matrix, and mm-hmm. so I went to that forum. I heard everyone speak, and then at the end, uh, you know, during the Q&A, I was in a wheelchair, so I asked my mom to, to wheel me to the microphone, and I just said, I asked, how can we help young adults talk about suicide and mental health in an open and honest way? And I said, my name's Jordan Burnham. I attempted suicide um, this past year. And so, yeah, I asked that question. And Ross, I believe, is the one who uh, answered. And then Joey asked me, how are you feeling? I said, well, it's still struggle, but I'm doing OK. And so the, the two people that were there that night, the um, two of the three um, founders, actually all three were there, Amy Erbaum and Steve Erbaum and, and Roger were there. And so I went home two weeks later. Joey uh, shoots me an email asking if I would want to go speak to Congress and share my story. I was too young to get it. Like I went, but I was too young to like fully understand like the weight of going to Congress and yeah. my story. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was my first ever public speaking engagement was the Congress and they're an easy audience. So I wasn't like that was, um, <laughs> that was but it was, that was my first time. And, um, you know, that's when Minding Your Mind and, and Ross and and everyone just kind of reached out to me and asked me if I would want to start speaking at schools. And, um, one, I didn't know how much work goes into being a, a public speaker. I didn't know how much speaking and like writing and everything and, and trial and error. You're scared of the error, but you got to go through that to become a better speaker and, and all the things. But, um, yeah, that first year, I remember the first school I spoke to, um, Happer Horsham in, in Pennsylvania and a thousand students. Um, I'm sure I was a mess. I'm sure I was terrible. I never want to see that tape, but, um, <laughs> I remember afterwards the line of students. <laughs> who came to talk to me. And it was in that moment that I realized, one, this is needed, right? And and to, to for students to hear a message. But two, I loved listening. And I think that's what got me. I just loved listening to others because it's something I never had back when I was in high school. Like I didn't even know a ton of people in high school who struggled with mental health in the way that I did. But in that moment in time, I got to hear directly from strangers I just met and there's something really powerful that, as much as I love using my voice and sharing my story, my favorite part of my job always is listening to others' experiences. And that just kind of took me into the path and journey of where I am today.
1: That's amazing, man. That is amazing. And just speaking to Congress, man, people would be like, man, speaking to Congress, that would be nerve wracking. But, man, you try speaking in front of some middle school, high school kids, man, in an auditorium. <laughs> Man, that that that's the real nerve wracking. <laughs> so I get that a lot. I get that, man.
2: <laughs> oh, no, no, one hundred percent. That's why we say, like, I I love doing all types of speeches and the keynote speeches, and and that's fine because people chose to be there and they read your bio and they knew who you are. Man, seventh graders don't. <laughs> they don't want to hear about your bio. They don't want to. They just want you to get up there and be real and and give a story that you know, hopefully gains their attention, you got to earn that too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you got to make sure <laughs> the jokes work. You got to make sure like you get, they got to know, oh, okay, he's kind of cool. He said, he said something about logic. Like you have to say at least one reference that gets them on board. And then um, <laughs> from there, from there, once you get their trust though, that's, that's the beautiful part of speaking to young adults is once you get that trust of an audience, that's when you truly get to, to share so much of, your message so much of your story and for them to take away from that is something I always hope is a positive point, but man, it, it is always nice when you leave that middle school, like, yeah, all right, we, we got through it. We got there.
1: Yep. Yep. You know, no kids booed me. Like, that's great, man. I had a good day. <laughs> These kids will let you know, man. <laughs> all right. Um, all right. Let's get into just a little little thing here just to get to know you uh, a little bit more, man. Um, so this activity is called what's your favorite. So, just diving into some of your favorite things, you can elaborate if you want, or you can keep it like short and simple, up to you. Um, I know, you know, you call yourself a class clown a lot. You've got jokes on deck and everything, man. So, who's your favorite comedian?
2: Favorite comedian? Um, mm. I mean, I, it's Dave Chappelle, but I always try. oh uh,
1: man, I, I had a feeling you were going to say that.
2: <laughs> like it's, it's like it's not even close actually but i'm still trying to but they're still my favorites i love
1: and man one of the things i love about bishop hell too man he's just the boldness man of what he says and he doesn't care you know how crazy it is but just like he just says he just says what, what how he feels man like you know whatever it is man any topic yeah, I, man he, he he's great
2: because I always tell other speakers, if you ever want to become a, a better speaker and you want to study someone, study comedians. Mm. Dave does such a great job. Like I know him. Dave Chappelle does such a great job of setting up a story. And where, like he he doesn't tell you exactly where he's going to go, but just setting up that story and um using the references that he does, all of it. I love the way Dave Chappelle just shares a story and makes a joke out of it.
1: So true, man. So true, man. And even comedians like, their engagement like the 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 power of them to engage you in something and make you feel those feelings and then at the same time they make you laugh like it's just so many different components of it like you know it's art, man it's, it's hard. like you're laughing you're crying you're angry like everything like, <laughs> you know Absolutely. yeah man all right uh your favorite all time athlete man
2: favorite all time athlete um man, this is a good one so. I would say, so my dad has this picture. My dad knew Dr. J back in the day. Oh, okay. Um, Yeah. And so he has this picture on his desk when he, well, when he was working, he had this picture of both of them got the big afros. um, It's one of his favorite pictures because they were in argument because my dad was yelling at him for wanting to leave college early, which is like now seems like an ancient (laughs) opinion to have. But my dad was really angry at him for not like wanting to go through all four years and getting a degree. And a photographer was like, hey, let me just take a picture so you can. Wow. What a moment. Yeah. So it, I, I love seeing that picture. Dr. J is probably um, my favorite just watching, especially too, because you don't get to see a lot of footage of Dr. J. So a lot of it is just hearing a lot of my my dad and guys his age of me telling and hearing actual stories about Dr. J. So um, I would say he's probably my favorite.
1: Mm. Yeah, man. and I know a couple of people that do know that that know of Doctor J as well, man. And they always say he's just uh, an amazing guy, man. Just off the off the court, like he's just a great great guy. So, yep. yeah, no 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 problem with Doctor J, man. Can't go wrong with Doctor J. All right. Um, what is the favorite place that you've traveled to speak so far?
2: Santa Barbara, California. I've yeah. never seen a place like it. I've um, I just. It didn't seem real when I was there, but it was, it was probably one of the most beautiful places I've been able to, to get to, Santa Barbara, California. Um, and, it, and these are places I never, ever, there's been so many places I've gotten to go. But you know what is a close second? is there's a, um, I went to North Dakota to speak at a college, mm-hmm. and I got to go out there, and it was a small town in North, North Dakota, and it was just beautiful. And it was everyone was so nice and so friendly there, and I remember leaving like, man, I would love to come back. I probably won't, but I would love to come back to North Dakota just because of how nice it was there. And so, um yeah, that's probably my my close second is North Dakota.
1: Awesome. do do you travel outside of the country a lot or on some occasions?
2: No, no I wish i um so the the places I've been to Canada and I've been to Mexico to to be a part still of mental health advocacy and share my story. Um, Hopefully, uh, once things calm down a little bit, (laughs) I'll be able to get back out there outside of the country and still share my story.
1: Yeah, man, I feel like after COVID, man, we are going to need you more than ever, man. You might not have a day off, man. Like, you know? (laughs) Yeah, man, man. The schools, man, schools are going to be calling you left and right, man. You know? Because I feel like there's so many, you know, like a lot, like with even the news, like they do play segments on how. COVID is impacting kids and teens and all that kind of stuff, but we still don't know the stories, you know, we still don't know what's happening at home and their experience and everything. And then what is going to be the impact when they get back to school, when, when they, life just starts happening normally again, what is the impact of all these experiences? So, you know, we we definitely need, you know, more Jordan Burnham to to kind of spread that out and talk to these kids, man. That's important. Yeah,
2: Uh, absolutely.
1: Yeah, man. Speaking of COVID, you know, COVID has changed our lives like a lot, you know, with just the activities and things that we're doing. So what has been kind of your favorite activity to do now, like with with COVID, during COVID?
2: Yeah. um, So I bought NBA 2K20 because, um, yeah, I, I saw there weren't some great reviews in the beginning and then I was at home and it was first when everything started. I was like, man, let me just play NBA 2K20, and let me just, you know, play for a bit, maybe an hour, maybe out of the day. Um, mm-hmm. And then I started my career, oh man, a <laughs> in NBA 2K20. And um, I don't think I play too much. I don't, cause I, I mean, who's to say how many hours you spend in the gym trying to work your team to a um, NBA title? And and now in year four, playing with Zion. Um, <laughs> Oh, man. I, I would definitely say uh, my little escape uh, during this time period has probably been video games. NBA 2K is definitely one of them.
1: Oh, man. I can't blame you, man. I used to be an NBA 2K head myself, man. But I had to I had to put it down, man. It was too much, man. My career mode is, like, never ending, man. It goes up until you, like, retire, man. It's yeah. like, how many games are we going to play here? Like, <laughs> it's crazy. But, nah, a, that, that's a really good tool, man. You know, I know a lot of kids use that tool, too, like video gaming and things like that. You know, as long as you don't become addicted, of course. But right. just, a, that a, yeah, that balance, a de-stressor, definitely, man. Can't go wrong with 2K, too, man. <laughs> you know? Everybody everybody wants to be dunking like Zion, man, or doing 360 windmills and things like that, man. You just, we just physically can't, you know? <laughs> you put that 2K on, <laughs> you know? Um. Yeah. So switching it off, man. What, what's been your favorite mental health activity now? Like you know, to to balance your own mental health. Yeah. Other than I guess the video games. Um.
2: <laughs> yeah, I would say that I enjoy journaling, and the, and the reason I, I I like journaling is because, uh, and I don't write pages upon pages. I never want people to think like I'm over here writing novels when I'm I'm journaling because I'm not. <laughs> Sometimes it's just a short paragraph of. Here's what happened today. Here's where I am scale of one to 10. And then here's what I did to try and cope with it. Mm. And the reason I like writing those is because I like looking back and seeing what exactly I've been through and exactly how I handled it. Because I, I think sometimes as people, we don't give ourselves enough credit of the things we've been through, but also the progress we've made since. And I think that's such a big part of it, too. Um, cause there've been things that I've been through that were difficult and, and so painful and saddening in that time, but because of working through it, because of crying, because of therapy, because of talking to people, I get to a place where I don't think of it in that way anymore, but I should still give myself credit for the work that it took to get to where I am today. So I like journaling for that reason. Uh, meditation too. Meditation is something got into, I would say that it's, uh, something I try and do in the morning. It's another thing I I tell people I do not do for an hour. Sometimes it's just five, 10 minutes in the morning just to try and get my mind right.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Those are really good tools right there, man. I feel like sometimes we ignore those things, man. The journaling, the writing, I think is, um, I talk to a lot of students and they never even think about that. But when, when they start doing it, it's like they, they can't stop, man, because it's almost like self therapy, man. Like where you're just, if you have nobody to talk to, you're talking to yourself, you're rereading it. And You know, tomorrow you might be feeling better, but you can go back and say, wow, I was really feeling like that the other day or whatever, you know. And it's, you know, it creates so much growth, man. It's very therapeutic, man. Um, And I know a lot of people that write books, they talk about the therapy of writing their book and writing their experiences and things like that, man. I think that that is definitely a powerful, you know, tool from the toolbox, man, the uh, journal writing, man. And the meditation is good, too. I'm glad you brought up that you only do five, ten minutes because sometimes people think you have to do like this whole hour long Type of thing, it's really whatever works for you, man. Some people exactly. do it for like two, three minutes, and then that's like a good brain booster for them for the day. So, yes, that's that's uh, that makes sense, yeah, man. Just so, just uh, transitioning uh, into what you do, like um, with just the whole mental health thing, and just uh, these you know, a lot of young kids' experiences, um, and your own school experience. I know you had you had health class, you mentioned you had health class and things like that. So was there anything like health or your own school experience was missing that would make you kind of, not really change your mental health, but really make you understand more what you were going through and would make young people, um, even young black people, expe- uh, understand some of their experiences and, and understand, um, you know, sometimes it's okay not to be okay. And these are, here are these tools and things like that. Like what, what do you think that would be?
2: So I think there's two parts of this. I think there's one, the educational part. So um, it definitely would have been helpful to understand depression and, and been educated on that. Mm. It definitely would have been good to understand um, in anxiety and the ways that you can cope with an anxiety attack, the ways that stress work, the things that you can do to not avoid some of these things, but how you can cope with them and how you can live with them and get through on a daily basis. Thanks to coping skills and other things, whether it's, um, you know, being able to get a workout in, whether it's going for even if it's just a short exercise, whether it's talking to someone, a counselor, all these things are the educational part. Right. Mm -hmm. The second part is hearing someone's story gives context to those facts and definitions, but also it helps you feel like you're not alone. So. If I tell you the definition of depression and I just give you that and and that's all you get, then yes, you understand the definition. But if I give you the definition and then I come into your school and I tell you the difference between depressed and depression and how it can affect someone, now not only do you have a little more context of what that might look like, but also you might be able to relate to some of the things that I talked about along the way. Um, So then you're educated in that aspect of it, too. So I definitely wish that we had the, and that's why I appreciate, you know, what Minding Your Mind does and the speakers, what we do is that you you get an education, but also you get an experience so that you don't feel alone. That's what I wish I had back when I was in high school.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, I know a lot a lot more schools are adapting that approach because of oh, the amount of mental health issues that there's been in, in a lot of schools. Um, but I also agree with what you were saying, like having somebody definitely come in and with those experiences that young kids can relate to. And not just, you know, having the health teacher, you know, teach it (laughs) for a couple of days and then that's it. But, you know, having it be a process, man. And I think that it's so strange to have something like mental health that you're pretty much experiencing 24-7, you know, as a person. And then we, we cover it very loosely, like in the school system, man it's just mind-boggling to me like it's so beneficial to to talk about these things so, everything you mentioned stress anxiety depression like all of those things should be known should be spoken about i feel like mental health could be its own class you know what i mean like i would love to see that <laughs>
2: yeah. i mean the the education part of it is so big and it's like what you said it seems so simple because when i played sports i had to get a physical every year like mm-hmm. that, that was you had to in order to play sports and to think that we could never have that same mentality when it came to mental health of just learning about it and seeing someone just for a check-in, um, I think is something we are gaining, though, um, as we look at the education system and the way that it is now.
1: Absolutely, man. Agreed, agreed. Um, with the, uh, the work that you do, like, um, what experiences, I guess, have you had where, like you said, it kind of solidifies for you, like, why are you doing what you do? And just the impacts, like the positive experiences that you've had with young people, and you know some of their stories, like after your speeches that they tell you and that 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 affects you. What have some of those been?
2: So I was um, with my 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 best friend uh, Travis. We were out. We were getting burgers, and um, I'm about to pay. We're in line, order. I was like, Yeah, you got to try this burger place. We're in line, order. I was about to pay, and this this guy walked up to me, and he said sir, I have you. I got you. And he paid for me and my friend. And I was like, thanks, man. What do I what's 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 going on? And he said, uh, you spoke of my school five years ago and you saved my life. Mm-hmm. The least I can do is buy you a burger. And uh, there's no statistic that can value that moment. Right. Like you, you can't say all right, a percentage of these students will gain this after a presentation about mental health because you can't put that into a category. That's just something that in that moment you're planting that seed and you're hoping there's a message that grows. And then for that message to to come through five or six years later is something that's really powerful. Um, The people that I have met years later who have gotten into the field of mental health as a counselor, Mm-hmm. um as being a mental health advocate after hearing my speech just shows me that this is this is bigger than just me and, and I'm happy to be a part of it but my purpose of sharing my story is for another story to grow and for another person to get out into mental health advocacy and to share how they're feeling and um for that to be a result of me being in a, a hospital bed sharing my story for the first time then um i'm I'm just you know I'm just I say the word grateful because gratitude is really all I feel a lot of times whenever I'm talking about my story, um, because of how close this all came to never happening. And so to have that feeling of how close this came to never happening to that young man buying me a burger because of a speech I gave five years ago. Um, it just, it just, to me, that's what I'm so happy about life that I get to do is to give back.
1: That's amazing, man. That is amazing to be able to have that experience, man. Because some people, they go through it and they don't even know, like you said, am I affecting anybody? Like, nobody says anything. I'm not getting feedback. So that's amazing that people can come up to you and tell you those things, man, and give you that feedback to acknowledge that what you do counts and it matters to me and thank you and all that. That's important. But um, there are kids out there that, that don't get Joy Burnham in their schools and they, they're not getting the talks and they don't have an amazing health teacher um, and they don't with some of these things you know dealing with some of these things on their own so um just with your own experiences and everything that you do what advice would you give to that kid that is you know at the breaking point man to where they don't have somebody to talk to they don't know where to get help you know they they, they're not getting the information that they need and they don't they think they're alone in, in this whole process like what what advice would you give them uh,
2: what, a, what advice I will give um, is that none of this is easy. I, I would, I tell students all the times, I would never get up on a stage or in front of your class and say that it's easy for all of this mental health stuff to just come together and to talk about it and communicate to one another. Sometimes it can be really difficult. And I've been in a place where it feels impossible. I think the biggest thing is to just share your emotions and what you're feeling with someone because that's the beginning of it. Mm -hmm. So the reason why holding things in and letting them express in a different way outside of speaking on it, sometimes for me, that was sleeping in the classroom. So when I'm doing that and I'm not talking about what I'm going through, someone might look at me and say, oh, he's just lazy. He just he doesn't want to be in school. Or if I'm acting out in class because I feel so uncomfortable of feeling sad, of feeling depressed, of feeling angry, and I'm trying to mask that, then someone might say, oh, he's just a class clown. It's not like he cares about school. But whenever you can say this is how I'm feeling and this is how it's affecting me, that's the first step of moving to a process of getting help, uh, of trying to get help. But also, too, it's good for yourself to be able to get that out there, whether Mm -hmm. that is writing it to someone, whether it's talking to someone. um, I would say that expressing how you're feeling is that first step of investing in your mental health.
1: Absolutely. Well said. Well said. And if I get to the point where, you know, maybe I do need to make that phone call to the National um, Suicide Hotline, if I get to that point, um, and I want to be more comfortable expressing myself to somebody that looks like me, um, another black person, can I make that request? You know, like, if you can make that request when you when you speak to somebody, like, can I speak to uh, somebody of color, somebody black? Like, I'm not, you know, I've never heard any of that. I don't know if you would know, like, if you could make a request like that.
2: Oh no! I actually—that's actually a really great point. That's something I don't know, and I—I um, I would definitely say um, look into that, research that, because that's a really great point that I never thought of. That's actually sometimes I really like when I don't know a, a question right away, is because it makes me know I have to look things up, but also because you make a really great point.
1: Yeah, yeah. Maybe we'll look—we'll look that up. Maybe hey, maybe I'll call—I'll call, I'll call it myself and ask them. Call it the. <laughs> the uh yeah national suicide prevention uh center and i'm uh, i'm going to ask them i'll update you too and i'll send you an email and let you know
2: as as long as someone's still able to make that call that, that that's what matters the most so yeah no thank you I, I appreciate that
1: for sure man um yeah and 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 uh like i like i've said before uh it would be hard we would be hard pressed you know as black males to to have a whole conversation of mental health and not touch on race as you know race is, a, is an entire component of itself and it's a huge factor in our mental health as black people in my opinion um our development our growth process and our pain our suffering everything um you know and i know you did a whole podcast episode on your experience with uh some of uh you know the the issues that have been happening with uh you know black people being um killed by police uh, you mentioned the death of uh, George Floyd, uh, Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, and uh, even Fernando Castillo was was killed on your birthday. Like, wow, like you know, yeah. speak about that man, the experience of that. Um, can you can you talk about just your experience, you know, you yourself mentally, emotionally dealing with some of these things, like looking at these clips on the news of um, you know black males uh, and even black females uh, being assassinated by police or um, just having a lot of issues, you know, with just race within itself and the dangers of being black, just in, in this country, in general, in the world. You know, what, what has been your, your experience mentally dealing with some of this stuff?
2: Yeah. I, um, yeah, I think with the, the murder of George Floyd, I think a lot of people either, a, are just waking up to a lot of the systemic issues that that led to, you know, the police officer, Derek Chauvin, you know, murdering George Floyd in the, in the way that he did and everything that led up literally to that specific moment um, that have been in place for years. And so what I talked about and, and what I wanted to was how I feel when one of my friends text me with the did you see the video um, or just say, please tell me you saw this video. I can't believe this. And it's. It's always, all right, well, send me the link. Let, let me go to Twitter. Let me look. And then, and, and it's video after video. And so it's, it's trauma that's mm-hmm. going on on your timeline. And one of the things I say at the end of that podcast is Emmett Till was murdered back in 1955 um, by two white men. And one of them was the, a, woman, a woman's husband who she said whistled at him. Emmett Till whistled at her while they were in a store. And uh, later recanted that um, story, hmm. but um, so after she said he whistled at me, those two white men went and they they brutally murdered Emmett Till, and so uh, Emmett Till, obviously not going into the the, the details of it, he um, was unrecognizable. And hmm. when it came time for his funeral, his mother Mammy Till said, um, "I don't want the casket to be closed. I want it to be an open casket," and Even then, she knew that there were going to be thousands of people that were going to come and pay respects to her son. There's going to be um, the photographer Calvin, I don't think Richardson, but I might be be, uh, mistaken, photographer who came and took the picture of Emmett Till that a lot of people I know is instilled in my brain to this day. And so she made that decision. And when people saw Emmett Till, his body, people passed out. People collapsed. They cried. They were distraught having to see him. We see that on the timeline all the time. Mm-hmm. To, to think that in that moment in time, Mammy Till's saying, well, you know, I want America to see what happens today so that people can take this in. And now it's, Hey, did you see the video? And, and that's it. And that's the trauma that you can see instantly. And when that person mirrors your skin color, when that person, all of a sudden you see that over and over again, there's this this sadness, there's this numbness, there's all types of feelings of emotions. But the biggest one is just exhaustion. It's it's exhausting having to explain this. Like It's, it's exhausting having to give statistics. It's exhausting having to explain why their statistics that they're giving is skewed in the argument that we're having. Like when I talk about these issues, when I talk about race, I already know what the other person might say who's up against me, who who disagrees with me on something. And I think it is exhausting to constantly have that in your mind of saying, all right, I just want to express how I feel. But also sometimes I just need someone to listen. And that that I think is the biggest thing is for someone to listen. Because even in 2020, you think about America and the relationship with Black people, at what point in this history of of this country has America said, you know what, we'll sit down, we will listen. Tell us about your pain. Tell us about the sadness. Tell us about the things that you've been through. We are here to listen. Mm -hmm. And that's something that Black people have not been afforded the opportunity to have and to do and not, not have the privilege of being able to do so. So, Taking all that into account and being a black man and and trying to go and and act like everything is okay when it really isn't. And it's okay to acknowledge that. It's okay to cry. It's okay to break down. And to talk about these things are a necessity because if we talk about mental health and don't acknowledge race, especially being black and talking about race and not acknowledging the, the police brutality that we've experienced over the years. then we're doing a disservice to our own mental health by not discussing this because that's one of the most important things that we can do. So um, for me personally, I just wanted to use a platform, and I'm I'm happy and I'm so fortunate that I have a platform to be able to do that with Minding Your Mind of saying, as a black man, I cannot just sit here and not use this platform, just not say something. Because I'd rather say something and have someone be offended than not say anything and have everyone be happy. Because that's mm. how, how um, because that's how much I believe in, in the message of Black people using their voices in order to to gain equality in America.
1: Absolutely, well said, man. Well said. And I feel like uh, too when we do express it, someone someone's always gonna have a different viewpoint. And I always tell people like it's alright to have a different viewpoint, but it shouldn't be to the point where we're we're debating who's right or who's wrong. Right. And right. this is your experience. This is your viewpoint. You can share it. We don't have to get in a debate and you know this is what it really is and this is like not at all not at all and i think that that's important for us to understand like that we can have a moment where i listen to you and you listen to me and we both get it out and we express how we feel and we don't even have to get to the point of whether we agree or not or whether we agree to this whatever it is you know what i'm saying this is your experience of it you know um and listening i think is important and understanding that people have these different experiences as far as mental health wise with this whole stuff, man, for me, um, I know for me, like with the whole trauma, like I can't continuously watch it and go through those phases of, of trauma and imagining yourself because it could be any of us that is experiencing, um, these things that's experiencing your last breath and, you know, being, being in a position of, of being powerless, you know what I'm saying? Um, So for me, it's difficult to like, I I don't remember the last one I've watched. I hear about them, and I might read the story and whatnot, but I can't watch it because of the amount of trauma that I, I feel personally watching it. And I think that, you know, some people might be okay with doing that, but if you're watching it and you're experiencing this trauma over and over and over again, like that could really lead to, I think, some deep mental health issues for us, you know, as black people to just watch almost ourselves being killed over and over and over and over again. And just imagining this could be my mother. This could be my brother. This could be my sister. This could be my little, you know, son or whoever. You know what I mean? Like that is tough on the mind. You know what I mean? So for me, I can't physically watch it. Um, but I do look at the stories. I read them. And like, I, I don't think it cannot play a role on your mental health to the point where you are, thinking about some of these things and your experience in this world and what you represent as a person of color, as a black person and what it means and everything. So, um, you know, I do appreciate the fact that more people are becoming aware of, you know, the the experiences of black people from not even just this country, but different parts of the world as well. And um, we're becoming more aware of each other's experiences and we're connecting dots and figuring out like some of this stuff is very similar and some of this stuff, is happening over there too and everything. So um it has been, you know, very interesting. But I think the major thing for me is just not replaying those those things and um you could read read the article or whatever it is and not have to really to watch it and experience the pain and the trauma. And then another thing, like sometimes they replay it, like, you know, it's gonna be on Monday's news, Tuesday's news, Wednesday's news and we're gonna play this over and over and over again. Like what does that do to the mind? You know? And that's something I think to definitely to think about. And if you are a person, you know, that, that watches these things, think about what your response is like mentally, emotionally, if it's pain and like you're, you're living that every single time you watch it, you know, I don't think that that is mentally healthy, but um, that's my opinion on that. But yeah, man, um, I think too, like just, you know, getting to the point of not just like, let me just watch this and feel bad and feel pain, but, like what? What can we do at this point? What needs to be done? And I think that's where that's that's where we need to be at um, to to for our own mental health, because I think these things do make you feel powerless and that you can't do anything and that you're in a weak position where at any moment, at any point, it could be your time for for a misunderstanding, for uh, a wallet, for a phone, for the wrong move or the wrong step, or um, you know having the wrong thing in your hand or whatever it is. You know what I mean? So. I think that's the next thing too. Like after I feel this pain and I'm crying, I'm expressing it. What can I do? Like, what is my interaction with other black people? You know what I'm saying? How can I, how can I not add to this? You know, how can I not add to these issues? And, um, you know, what, what, what am I going to do to, to better this situation? And I think that's for each individual to figure out, but that's an important question. Absolutely.
2: Important to talk about.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So when, uh, kind of your story, your full ESPN documentary is being told, you know, um, what, what are some things you definitely want in there about your life, what you stood for, who you are, what you're about, like, what do you want that story to tell about Jordan Byrne?
2: Man, um, (laughs) I think that when, when people hear my story, when people hear of me, when, um, When they get a chance to kind of just maybe look at one of my videos, whatever it may be, I um I always want my message to be that if the students forget, I'm completely fine if the students forget what color tie I wore. I'm completely fine if the students forget, um you know what my name was. I'm completely okay with if they don't remember any of the slides except for the one that came up. That's the suicide prevention hotline number and the crisis text line. Um, If they don't remember any of those things, that's fine. If they remember the message, if they remember the hope, if they remember the conversation that they have with a friend that day, if they remember, maybe they don't remember the presentation the next day or maybe the message that next day, but maybe they go through something two or three years later down the road and they remember something that I said about a coping skill, something like that. Um, That's what I want. You know, I I always have always acknowledged that I'm a part of something that is bigger than me in mental health advocacy and suicide prevention. And um, a lot of the things that I get to take a part of in my life, I know that a lot of these things are just bigger than me, but I always want to make sure that I propel my message so that as many people in the audience can get that message as possible and to move it forward so that 20, 30 years from now, I get to hear a speaker who heard that presentation or heard a presenter for Minding Your Mind who is now sharing their story because of something that they heard. And that's the uh, that's the beauty of this job and that's the thing that I love the most. So, um, yeah, I, I always just want people to know that I hope more than anything, people just come away with a message and then just go in the, the right direction of talking to someone, of getting help um, or helping another person because that's what kind of going back to that hospital is that I never know What the person to the left or the right of me in that that hospital is going through, and even though I'm going through some pain, I want them to get help at the same time. And so for me, thinking about mental health advocacy, I always think, I don't know what that student who's falling asleep is going through. I don't know that student who's laughing and, and kind of joking in the middle of a presentation. I don't know what they're going through. But no matter what, I hope that they get the help that they need. And I hope to get the message that they need out of my story and that it helps them later down the road.
1: Well said, man. Well said, um, man. It's it's been it's been a wonderful experience, man, having you here, wow. man. People don't know, but um, in the beginning of our program, man, we were having some technical difficulties. Uh, Jordan's in a hotel, and he went and he got, all, you know, he he went and spoke to everybody, got his Wi-Fi figured out, and that took like thirty minutes, man. And that's love, man, because you could have easily been like, you know what, man, we don't even have to do this interview, man. Forget about this. <laughs> Make it happen. Absolutely, man. So, you know, we definitely appreciate you taking out the time, you figuring out the Wi-Fi and everything, man. And um, I know this this, this, this is an important interview to me, man, because, you know, I've known so many students and so many young people that are experiencing so many different things. And we always, especially when we're black, in our mind, think that nobody's feeling like this. You know, nobody's going through what I'm going through. Nobody has my pain. Nobody has my suffering. No one's going to understand but I think that you've been through all avenues of it all. And if anybody's going to understand, it's going to be you um, just from everything that you've experienced, man. So I feel like you are that connecting point for a lot of young people to be like, you know, you know, Jordan gets it, man. He's been through what I'm going through. He's thinking what I'm thinking. Um, He, you know, he he survived this attempt and he's been at the bottom of the bottom to to where he is now. So I know that that it's possible for me to get through this. And I think that, that is important, man. And that, and that work that you're doing, you know, it's very important.
2: Thank you. I appreciate that.
1: For sure, man. For sure. Um, if you could just leave us, man, with, uh, you know, a quote that you like to use or that's valuable, that means something to you, that'd be great.
2: Man, a quote, you know what? I
1: can't, I can't
2: think of a quote. So I'm going to, I'm going to give homework to whoever's listening, uh, any student, any parent, whoever's listening, um, I start my morning off every single day with one song. And it's jazz. So my, my, my grandfather was a, an incredible uh, jazz pianist. And um, one, one of the songs that I loved him playing was um, Over the Ra- over the Rainbow was one of my favorites that I got to listen to him. But um, there's another song that I listen to that I start every morning with. And it's um, Oscar Peterson. It's "Hymn to freedom. And so I went... Anyone listening to not only listen to that song, but look up the history behind him to freedom and why why Oscar Peterson wrote that song, because it goes a lot into some of the things we talked about, about race and being in America. And when I hear that song, it gives me just a lot of hope and and just soul. There's a lot of soul in that song, but there's a lot of hope in there, too. So uh, that, that's my homework for everyone instead of a instead of a, a quote that I can't think of right now. I'm going to give you some time
1: to do that. <laughs> for sure, man. I'm going to do my homework on that myself and and check that out as well, man. Thank you for that. Um, And I, you, know, you just reminded me too, man. I did want to touch on music that we didn't get to touch on. Um, But a lot of people go to music to deal with their mental health. And I know like in a previous interview, you mentioned that you used to have like, you know, the, the emotional music on blast and all of this stuff walking through the hallways. Um, And I think, you know, there's obviously different levels of your music. Music can be inspirational, motivational, can uplift you, but it can also be on the opposite end. So do you think that um, certain music has the ability to make your mental health worse or um, is it just music? Is it just like listening to the vibes and this and that and just vibing out? Like, do you think that music has that ability to where if this is what you're listening to on a regular basis, and it's not the best that it can, it can you know, really lower your mental health um, or it has obviously the ability to enhance it as well. But what I'm thinking about is some of the um, young people that, that listen to people like Exexentacion and, um, you know, like he, he has certain music too that, that's uplifting and different things like that. But a lot of young people listen to the emotional components, like the sad, the suicidal components of a lot of music. Now, do you think that has an impact on mental health at all, like with that?
2: Yeah, I think music um, brings out a lot of things in us, right? It's music that we listen to get up in the morning to, to wake us up when we have a long car ride, uh, the music to just relax. I think we all have different playlists. But I think there's also mood that we, we there's music that we use to reflect our mood. And I think sometimes that can, can come into some of the songs you talked about kind of feeling depressed. Some of those songs can talk about suicide of those songs you can't talk about real heartbreak, going through terrible breakups, all those things. Um and that's music, right? That's art. Sometimes people people might like to listen to um music that reflects their mood. But mm-hmm. I think it goes back to kind of that balance thing. Uh, I, I always try and think of a balance of sometimes I'm in one of those moods, but I also try and say all right if I'm if I'm going to try and stay positive today. I'm going to try and, and get a little more energetic today. What can I listen to? Sometimes I'll put myself in a different type of playlist. But, um, you know, it's funny that you say that, too, because um, my my neighbor below me plays his music, like, really loud. And uh, I'm not, I am not I don't complain about it because a lot of the music he plays slaps. So, I, like, I'm fine <laughs> with it. But the reason why you made me think of him was because, like, sometimes he'll play the weekend for, like, the entire, like, day. I want to – just knowing he's listening to the weekend makes me say, "All right, is he all right?" Like, yeah. I check? <laughs> like mm-hmm. just because he's listening to the weekend. So I think sometimes we definitely have to check ourselves. Of like, all right, what am I listening to? All right, that's fine. If, if That's what I want to listen to right now. But I think it always is kind of important to find that healthy balance of of the other things that you might listen to that might be a little more uplifting. That might be to speak about little things that are a little different that aren't as serious, but I think everyone just kind of has their different music preference of what mood they're trying to be in. Um, I, I always just say balance and being mindful of where you're at is important.
1: Well said, man. I definitely agree on that, man. That balance so important with everything, man. Um, man, Jordan, it, it's been a pleasure, man. You might have to do a part two at some point, man. <laughs> you definitely might have to do a part two at some point. So we really appreciate having you on, man. And I know like not even young, not even only young people, but just anybody in general just going through some tough times right now will definitely, you know, get a lot from, you know, your interview and just, you know, what you've said. And this is, you know, like not you flipping through textbooks and looking at mental health through that lens, but your own life experience. And I think that's the ultimate form of, you know, education and learning about some of these things to where you can actually understand from that standpoint and not just from, you know, like you said, here's the the definition of depression. Here's the definition of anxiety. Like, you know, you've lived this. You're telling this from a personal standpoint. And, you know, I appreciate it, man. Um, So, yeah, man, uh, if there are, you know, young people that are inspired right now that that, um, are, you know, curious and want to ask further questions or, you know, you know, or people that work in schools that want to seek you out for, you know, a possible... You know to come in and speak to to kids or anything like that where can they find you
2: yeah uh you can you can head to miningyourmind.org um on there there's not only just can you book me to, to speak or one of the other presenters that we have um there's also resources on there there's um teacher toolkit that's on there we also just started a um, new campaign live to tell that's on there as well so minding your mind we have a lot of new things that are going on. But yes, please go to mindingyourmind.org. And um, yeah, I just just appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much, man. Thank you so much. And guys, uh, hopefully, you know, you got something from this. Uh, I got a lot from it just in everything we spoke about. Um, And I hope this was helpful if you're going through anything right now or, you know, if you're you're in that phase of, uh, you know, just not not getting the world right now because it, it is very uh, difficult to understand especially right now um, and i know for anybody just going through it and um just from jordan's story man there, there is a purpose to this thing you might not be able to find it right away you know jordan didn't find it right away um and he had to go through these you know periods of trials and tribulations in order to understand his purpose and i think we all have that period where we go through our trials and our tribulations, and figure out what am i here for but i think every single person is here for a reason and here for something and i think that you know even if you're experiencing deep depression so uh you know suicidal ideation or whatever it is that you have a purpose so just be patient with yourself and give yourself time to figure things out and like Jordan was saying it's okay not to be okay that's important but um how are you going to help yourself what are you going to do are you going to do the journals are you going to listen to positive music you know are you going to Do something. Watch something that makes you laugh. You know, are you going to talk to a friend, talk to a buddy, talk to uh, an adult, you know, um, or some people get animals and different type of things. So, you know, it's okay not to be okay. But now what? What's the next plan? What are you going to do to help alleviate that? I think that's important. Right. Um, And just remembering that you have a purpose. You have a purpose and you're here for a reason. And then to also remember, um, your mind is the most powerful tool in the universe. Therefore, if you can think it, you can do it. If you believe in it, you can be it. And if you fight for it, you can have it. The world is yours. This has been your host, Mr. G, and I will see you next time on Mastermind.